0: You're listening to a message from Victory Dumageda. So today, I want you to understand is Your eyes will be opened about something that might be missing in your life. I want to say this as early as now. So this is you right here. And for anyone who desires to follow Christ, this is for you. I've realized that a given disciple or a follower of Christ has three marks, I would say. Let me put it this way, a healthy disciple or follower of Christ is marked by these three things, meaning to say, if these three things are present and perfectly balanced in your life, then you will have a healthy Christian walk. So if these three things are present and well balanced in your life, you are going to have a healthy Christian walk. Now, I'm going to say some words or terminologies that you might find that's too much. Don't worry. This is not something that you have to memorize or something. I'll just use this to explain something. Then I'll further go to the vernacular in a while. Here are the three things that are important to a given disciple. So say, for instance, if I look at KB right here, or I look at Kevin or Dal, so these three things are actually present in their life. The first one will be their orthodoxy. The second one is their orthopraxy. And the third one is their orthopathy. Alright? Believe it or not, these three things are present in your life. So, it's shaped as a triangle because I want us to understand, you cannot have one without the other. Alright? A disciple of Christ, a follower of Christ is marked by these three things. So. Now, when you say ortho, for our medical practitioners here, ortho simply means right, tama. So when you say orthodoxy, it simply means it's our right understanding. Our right understanding, say for instance, your right understanding of who God is and what He is like. That's orthodoxy. Your theology, every single one of us here, believe it or not, every single one of us here are theologians. In a sense that we have an understanding about God and I want us to understand our theology affects our methodology and that is our orthopraxy and that is our right practice. You need to understand it. So our theology, that's our orthopraxy, our right understanding about God. Now imagine this, if we don't have the right understanding about God, then we might not be having biblical preaching here. What you might be encountering in our victory groups might not be biblical at all. So, orthodoxy is extremely important in a given local church. And just like what I said, orthopractice and the right practice is also important. The other one is what we call orthopathy, which is the right inner life. Now, if you still do not understand this, don't worry. Let summarize that in one word for each. So, it's basically like this. Your orthodoxy is basically your identity. All right, that's basically your identity. Your orthopraxy, practice is our Christian practice, our Christian service. And our orthopathy is our spirituality. All right, everyone understands this? You folks get this? I think this is very clear to everyone. So a Christian disciple, a follower of Christ is marked by these three things. Let me go on to my point. Let me talk about two things. In my many conversations with many of you, with many of you, in my many conversations and my many observations, all right, with our local church, and don't worry, that includes me. In my many observations, when I talk to you, when I observe you, when I counsel people, when I talk to people, I realize that for Victory magete. I realized for Victory Dumaguete, when we start talking about our orthodoxy, we're kind of getting a passing mark with it. It's kind of like, you know, I was talking with a pastor. I was talking with a pastor in Manila several days ago. He was like coming to me, hey, you know what? I've met some guys from Dumaguete. And you know what? These guys from Dumaguete, you guys, you talk about a lot of doctrinal stuff. In short, is it a good thing or a bad thing? It's actually a good thing. Right? Because if you don't understand who God is, if you don't understand what God is like, if you don't understand the doctrines of life, then we might fall into heresy. So I realized that when it comes to our theology, when it comes to our orthodoxy, I would say that we're actually okay in this aspect of our life. Now, the other thing is, when I start thinking about our practice, Victory dumagete and Victory in general is just so bent in missions. It's kind of like if you go to victory and you have not heard make disciples, then you haven't been to victory. You folks know what I'm talking about. If you're in victory, if you're in victory, you will hear people tell you, hey, you volunteer in the ashering ministry, you volunteer in the tech ministry. It's like when it comes to Christian practice, in victory, we always do all of these things. It won't be hard for me to invite you guys to attend a prayer meeting. It won't be hard to ask people in this church to attend a certain gathering over there. Pagdating po sa practice, Christian practice, pasado tayo I realize like what I said in my many conversation and observation, these two aspects right here are things that we are good at. There is an aspect that I feel like we all lack and that is our orthopathy or our spirituality. And I don't know with you, if you realize how important your spirituality is, if you take this component or aspect of your life, and then you are so good with your theology, you're so good with your practice, then you have just turned yourself into a religious person who has no depth in his walk with God. We're okay with theology, we're okay with doctrines, Talk to anyone in Dumaguete. They do good exegesis. They do good exposition. We understand all the doctrines out there, the big ones and the non-debatable ones. You ask people to join Victor Group, lead something, go to Tanhai, make disciples. We do all of these things. But when it comes to our inner man, when it comes to our sensitivity in the spirit, when it comes to our... True walk with Christ. I want us to understand this, friends. You know why we're so good at this? We're so good at this because these are the externals that people see. A lot of times when people are so good at orthopraxy, what do we tell the person? You know what? I think you have to be a pastor. You can be a pastor. When people are so good with orthodoxy, we get so dazed and it just becomes a badge for us. When we're so good with our Greek or Hebrew or whatever, it becomes a badge for us. But at the end of the day, this aspect of our life is extremely important. And I feel like to a certain extent, as a local church, we are getting a failing mark in this aspect of our life if there is an aspect of our life that needs to be revived, remember the day you got saved. Remember the love that you have for God. Remember the pursuit that you you want to do for God. Along the way, we've lost it and we have become so good with theology. We have become so good with practice, but we have lost our depth in our walk with God. And this is an aspect in our life that needs to be revived, if not resurrected. Amen. Amen. Am I doing a good diagnosis here? Friends, I want to confess to all of you that this isn't just you. This is me as well. Let me further explain this. So what I'm going to do here upon doing that diagnosis is I want to submit something to every single one of us. An orthopraxy because the triangle, they feed on each other. So I want to submit to everyone an orthopraxy that might help our orthopathy. Okay, in order for me to do that, I'm going to explain a right understanding or the orthodoxy to feed these two things. In order for us to revive that which we have lost. Alright, so there's something I don't want us to understand. Let me look into Luke chapter 3, verse 21 to 22, two verses. Then we'll jump and look into Luke chapter 4. Look at Luke chapter 3, verse 21. It says here, Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, look at this, what's the scenario here? There was water baptism and then together with the hundreds of people who were baptized by John, Jesus steps in and says, Hey, I want to be water baptized too. The difference is the difference with our baptism and his baptism, something happened during his baptism. In his baptism, while he was baptized by John the baptizer, while he was being baptized, it says here, the heavens were open. And then it says here And the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus In a bodily form In the form of a dove And a voice from heaven said You are my beloved son With whom I am well pleased Right Now Yes I want us to look at this logically So I want us Victory Dumageta, To be a thinking people Let's think Don't leave the thinking to me I want us to be thinking people now Who am I can say that This wasn't any ordinary baptism. When I was water baptized, the moment I got out of the water, all I saw was the faces of my friends yelling and singing. Heavens were not open. None of those things happened. But for Jesus, during his water baptism, the heavens were open and God spoke from heaven. All right. Now, let me ask this question for a while. Don't you think that that was a great spiritual experience? what do you think all right that was a great spiritual experience now at the heels of that great spiritual experience look what happens in Luke chapter 4 verse 1 and 2 right after his baptism Right after receiving a great spiritual experience, here's what happened. Look at this. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. Look at this one. For 40 days being tempted by the devil, and he ate nothing. Interesting. At the heels of a great spiritual experience, he ate nothing. If that were to happen to me, if I have been a recipient of a great spiritual experience, guess what? I'm going to be out there telling all my friends about what I have just experienced. But for Jesus, that wasn't the case. At the heels of a great spiritual experience, he went by himself and ate nothing. Didn't eat anything. Now, look at this. It says here, he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. Now, this was before, you know, he started this ministry. So his water baptism was a crucial aspect of his life. It happened before his ministry. And this great spiritual experience, he did not eat anything. Now, who am I can say? Logically thinking that that was strange. Something great happened to you. And your response is, I'm not going to eat. That's strange. That is unnatural. So I realized that if you look at God's Word, it's quite interesting because there's a pattern in God's Word. I realized that, wait, there's something here that we need to understand. This specific thing didn't just happen to Jesus. It happened to other people in the Bible. In fact, there's a mention of 30 to 40 people who did not eat because of something that they've experienced with God. I have a couple of characters here. The first guy who did not eat, which means fasted. If you do not eat, you fast. Tama? Listen, friends, I'm not talking about diet. Magpaka-spiritual tayo ng konti. If you don't eat, you fast. Not eating is equivalent to fasting. Now, the first guy who ever fasted in the Bible was Moses. All right? It was Moses. Now, look what happened. I want you to see that there's a pattern. Friends, I'm looking into Exodus. In the Old Testament, I'm looking at First Kings chapter 19 and Jesus in Luke chapter 4. Look at what happened. What happened to Moses? Moses, you know, God reveals to him. God reveals himself to Moses in thunders and lightning and earthquake. It was a great spiritual experience. And what did Moses do? In response to that, Bible says, he fasted. He didn't eat anything. Huh. Now, Elijah, if you remember... This was the battle, the showdown between the prophets of Baal, the prophet of God Elijah. There was a showdown, and God appeared and consumed the sacrifices and consumed the prophets of Baal. It was such a great spiritual experience. It was a revival moment. What did Elijah do? He fasted, he just stopped eating. For how many days? 40 days. And in the same way, when Jesus encountered God the Father during His baptism, what did He do? He did not eat for 40 days. I just want us to see a pattern that's quite interestingly evident in God's Word. It's like, wait, there's something we need to understand here. Now, let's go into our understanding of fasting. I want us to look at these three guys for a while. Moses, Elijah, and Jesus. Now, I want to ask this question. When they were fasting... Were they asking God for something? They were not asking God for something. It wasn't like, Lord, I want a wild truck. Lord, I'm going to fast because I want a wild truck. Lord, I want a godly husband. I'm going to fast, Lord, I'm going to have this godly husband. So it wasn't formulaic in nature. It wasn't like my understanding. Sorry if I have taught this over and over again in the past couple of years. I feel like I have to repent from this. Because our understanding, our usual understanding of fasting is, we fast, we starve ourselves to show God that we are so serious and then God ushers in whatever it is that praying for. I realize that when there's something so critical, when there's something so crucial, when there's something so important, this is what we do. Sometimes, a lot of times we think that fasting works this way. A lot of us think that fasting works this way, that you know, we have to deprive ourselves of food to show God that we're so serious, that we're so committed, that we're so locked in. And then right after this season of fasting, right after three days, five days, here comes God with our wants and needs. God comes in with our wants and needs. I look at the Bible and I realize that, wait a second, the biblical pattern of fasting was not that they were trying to accomplish a certain result. Now, am I here to say that if this is the case? I'm not going to pray for girlfriend anymore. I'm not going to pray for house and let I'm not going to, no, no, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm just zeroing in on the biblical pattern of fasting. All right. So here's what we have. Here's what we would realize from the life of Moses, Elijah, and Jesus, and the rest of the fasters in Scripture, the rest of those people who fasted, this is what they have. This is what happened to them. What happened was, whom are you able to appreciate that the things that we teach here, the things that we preach here should be biblically derived. Would you want it that way? I hope you trust us enough That we did a due diligence in studying this, that this is what it says in God's word. All right? So, what happened was, I realized that fasting in the Bible looks like this. Fasting in the Bible is, you know, figures, personalities, people in the Bible have had a sacred and divine encounter, they have an encounter with a holy God an encounter with a sacred, and what as a response, as a response to that sacred moment, what they do is, they do a bodily response. And that is to fast. To just stop eating. It's interesting. Sounds weird. But it's biblical. That's what we see in God's Word. Interestingly, You know, I realized that if you love church history, you would understand that in the course of church history, prayer, worship, fasting were actually normal in the church. When people look at you and say, and you tell them you're a Christian, people will know, oh, you're a worshiper, you're a praying person, and you love to fast. That was like this. We have lost fasting just the past 100 years. The sad reality is right now, fasting is designated just at the start of the year and the mid of the year. It has become a special event in the church. But if you read church history, fasting is way integrated in their life. Because it's an encounter with a sacred. I want to show you some instances in God's Word to prove my point, to qualify this. I want to show you some instances. The, the first one is found in Acts chapter 13. Go to Acts chapter 13. This is the story of Barnabas and Paul. This was a defining moment kind of fasting. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers. Who were they? Barnabas. Simeon was called Niger. Lucius of Cyrene. Manaean. Herod of Tetrarch and Saul Now look at this Look at verse 2 It says here in verse 2 Look at this one While they were Worshipping the Lord and You catch it? You worship You encounter the divine You worship You encounter the sacred What you do? You fast So worship and fast Worship and fast Worship, prayer, fast It's interwoven to each other It's not like, I'm not saying that heaven should open as your spiritual encounter, no. Heaven might not open, but I'm just saying that just like when we were singing the song, When I Say Your Name, if it has ministered to you, if you knew for a fact, but when you're 33,000 feet with Cebu Pacific, you're looking outside the window, you feel like you have had an encounter with God, that is a spiritual moment. Sometimes just by looking at your gate at home, you encounter a spiritual moment. Sometimes just by looking at the lamigas on your dining table, you encounter a spiritual moment. God speaks to us in different ways. So here, they were worshiping sacred, and then they fast. Worship fast. Look what happened. Because of this, what happened here was, guess what? The Holy Spirit influenced them. The Holy Spirit talked to them. So when the Holy Spirit talks to you, am I right to say that that is a sacred moment? Isn't it? Now look, that was a sacred moment that the Holy Spirit spoke to them. Now look at verse 3. What was their response? Come on now, look at their response. Verse 3 says, Then after fasting and praying, Holy Spirit speaks to them, and what they do was, they fasted and prayed, and after that, what happened? A defining moment in the life of Paul and Barnabas A defining moment in the life of what? The entire Christendom They laid their hands on Paul and Barnabas And the rest is history You guys know Paul The greatest missionary was ever lived Listen, his commissioning involved fasting The commissioning of Paul involved fasting Which came first? The sacred moment came first. They fasted, not for the result. If you've noticed, I've left this blank. You know why? Because we don't know how God will answer. Psalm 35, David's prayer were left unanswered. So for them, they didn't fast for the result, but they fasted because of an encounter with the sacred. Are folks following? They fasted because of their encounter with the sacred. Now, let me make this so real in our lives. Now, who on here can say that you love to eat? Obviously, right? let's think about your life 15 years from now. 15 years from today, July 2, that's going to be July 2, 2038. Alright? Are you folks certain what you're going to do on July 2, 2038? Like at this hour? We're not certain what we're going to do, but guess what? Pateho mula. I am quite certain that on July 2, 2038, you are going to eat. Isn't it? Why? When you talk about eating, it's a universal routine. Whether you are a Mediterranean, you're Arab, you're Parisian, American, British, Filipino. I mean, we enjoy food. It's a universal routine. When you start talking about food, it's something that is what? every people from all walks of life enjoy. So what is not normal then? To eat is normal. To not eat is not normal. At 7.30, you guys are going to have your only wings, whether only wings, your can see. All of us, between 7.30 until 8.30, all of us will be eating. So what is not normal is if I have observed, hey, wait a second, bro, na realized ko two days ka nang hindi that is what is not normal to not eat is not normal to eat is normal so the question now then is when do you not eat aside from the fact if you don't have money let's set it aside students you know what I'm talking about right students when do you not eat you do not eat when there's a disruption when there's a disruption. I mean, God forbid, of course, when a family member is brought to the hospital, you don't care about the time, you don't care about the hunger, because you're attending to a loved one in the hospital. There's a disruption. When your wedding is at 3 p.m. in the afternoon, you don't want to have breakfast, you don't want to have lunch, because you're looking forward to wearing your barong to make sure that it will really fit you. There's a disruption. When there's like a board exam tomorrow and you're really studying and studying, you're pouring in everything that you have. Why? Because you want to pass the exam because there's a disruption. When there's a disruption, our normal routine suddenly stops. These things disrupt our day-to-day routines and our day-to-day living. And the same way, friends, in the natural that happens, in the same way I want us to understand when the sacred and the holy God disrupts us, when the divine disrupts us, our routine is broken. Our routine is put on hold, and that's why we fast. This is a rope. Let's say you were invited by your friends to go out Mount Alinis. Let's say you're up there Mount Alinis, and you woke up one morning, and it's just... Covered in fog and you really feel the presence of the Lord in that place What do you do? You start praying You just start praying Let me make another scenario Let's say someone comes to you and gives you a prophetic word prophesies over you. What do you do? You start praying Isn't it when we encounter the divine? Our soul tells us that we ought to pray. I am showing you this because... Praying, I want us to understand man, whether tripartite or bipartite, whatever that you believe, man is a tripartite being. We are not just a soul, we also have a body, isn't it? So we respond, our soul responds to something that is sacred by praying. But because our spirit and soul is interwoven with our body, we also do a bodily response to that which is sacred and that is to fast. That we don't just pray, our body also responds by fasting. So fasting is our bodily response when we encounter the holiness of God. In the course of worship, people actually fast. I'm going to go to another instance here. People in the Bible, they also fast as they turn from sinful Choices in their life. Now, who can only say that you have had a couple of sinful choices in your life? Right now, look at this. Look at First Samuel chapter seven, verses two to six. From the day that the ark was lodged at kiriath Jearim, a long time passed, some twenty years, and all house of Israel lamented after God. To lament is to cry. To lament is to grieve. To lament is to mourn. That is what lament is. And Samuel said to the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve Him only. And He will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and they serve the Lord only. Pause, pause. Don't you think that that is a sacred moment? It's a sacred moment. You know why? It's a sacred moment because they were deep in their sin and God speaks to them. It's kind of like Archie, you have a nasty, bad, sinful behavior. Bang! Oh, I thought I was good. Anyone of you here was married? The men, the husbands, before you got married, am I right? You thought you were so great until you got married. And suddenly when you got married, you realize, oh my goodness, I am a sinful man. You realize how filthy your attitude is. You feel like, huh? na ko? Nasty naman so for some reason you're confronted your sin is being confronted and guess what every time your sin is confronted guess what friends don't take that against that person don't take that against God because that is a divine moment it's the grace of God so guess what they realize that they are sinful they realize how sinful they are here's what happened look at verse 5 I'm telling you, the pattern is just so evident. Look at verse 5. Verse 5 says, Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. Say they gathered. Look at this. Gathered. Gathered. Corporate. All right, At Mizpah, and drew water and poured out before the Lord. And guess what they did? They fasted. Corporately. And I realize that if you look at the Bible, majority of the biblical examples of fasting is like this. That God speaks to them in the midst of their sin, and they start fasting. So, it tells me then that, okay, this is interesting. Because these people became awfully aware of how awfully sinful they are, and the response was to fast. Going back to the diagram, this is what they've experienced. They've experienced a sacred moment, and they fasted. It wasn't like they fasted so that they will not have a sinful attitude anymore. No, they've encountered the grace of God and they fasted. And of course, there was a result. Over and over again, this is what you will see in God's Word. So, what I'm trying to say here is this when God reveals to us something to us, God, guess what? Listen, God will reveal to you how screwed up you are. God will reveal to you. God will talk to you. The Holy Spirit will tell you how messed up your thinking is, how bad your attitude is, how worse of a husband you are, how worse of a wife you are or a parent you are. The Holy Spirit will tell you how bad you manage your own finances, how screwed up you are in your relationships, how prideful you are. And when that moment comes, I want you to understand that it's a sacred and divine moment because the Lord spoke to you. And sometimes there's a bodily response to this. What we have there in the story in 1 Samuel is this, part of their confession is fasting. Part of their confession is fasting. I have another diagram here. It's kind of like this. Your life is going linear. There you are, an active victory group leader. You're just so great in your own eyes. And here you are, your parents tell you something, your wife tells you something something your friends in the church tells you something and you still would not listen anyone here is guilty of that right a lot of us are guilty of that we still wouldn't listen what you don't realize is god brings people in our life as a means of grace for you to stop doing those foolishness you folks remember Nathan. Nathan the prophet went before David and told David, Hey, David, you are a sinner. We need people who are like that. And here what happens was everything was so linear until boom, suddenly something happened to the person. He realized how sinful he is. And his response was to fast. Fasting does not make you right with God. I just want to be very clear. Fasting does not make you right with God. Fasting simply is you embodying that repentance. That confession. Because I don't want us to fall again into the religious trap saying, okay, I'm going to fast because I've sinned. I'm going to trap. Guess what, man? That's religiosity. That's not what we're talking about. It's just us embodying this experience by fasting. Look at Joel chapter 2, verse 12 to 13. A few more verses, then we're going to end. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Oops. Look at that. Look. What is fasting associated with in this verse? Fasting is associated with weeping and mourning. Now, what happens to a person who doesn't eat for a day or two? You become hungry. H- a-N-G-R-Y. My, my wife tells me that. You become hungry. Hungry, angry. You become angry, right? I mean, come on guys. You don't mess with someone who haven't eaten for two days. Oh my goodness. You don't play a prank on them. I'm telling you. People who haven't eaten for a day or two, they get easily annoyed. They get easily angry. They just get easily irritated and stuff like that. When you don't eat, it actually shows in your face. So in this aspect right here, when something happens, it says here, look at this one. In Joel, it gives us a picture that fasting is associated with grieving and mourning. When you grieve, you fast. We find it here in God's Word. Why? Because it is the embodiment of the grief that we are experiencing. I mean, friends, okay, I'm not saying that this should happen to you, but I don't think that any of you here would do this. If a loved one passed away, you don't go to Jollibee two hours after that person passes away and you eat with your friends. You don't do that, isn't it? When Joseph died, his family called for a fast for seven days. It's an, it's an embodiment of grief. Another instance that you find God's word in the scripture is when a tragic calamity happens, people actually fast. Psalm 35 verse 1, Psalm 35 verse 1 Contend, O Lord, with those who contend with me, fight against with those who fight against me. Let them be put to shame and dishonor those who seek after my life. Let them be turned and disappointed who devise evil against me. They repay me evil for good, for my soul is bereft. But I, when they were sick, when they were sick, my soul is bereft. But I, when they were sick, I wore sackcloth and I afflicted myself with Fasting. It's kind of like, you know, David saying, I stop the normal operations of my life when tragedy happens. When tragedy happens. When sickness and tragedy happens. I look into this and I realize in Psalm 35, in Psalm 35, if you look at the Psalm of David, David was praying. In Psalm 35, I forgot which words, you can just check it out. But it says there that his prayer was unanswered. All right? His prayer was unanswered. My point is this. When people fast, they're consumed with these two things. They're not consumed with the result. They are consumed with these two things. To encounter the sacred and to fast. To fast and encounter the sacred. To encounter the sacred and to fast. And the result, we leave it to the Lord. Am I suggesting that this coming fasting, that you don't pray for healing? That's not what I'm saying. I'm not here suggesting that you don't pray for your material needs. You don't pray for healing. Whatever it is that you're... That's not what I'm I'm just saying that we don't fast for the result. We will fast because we have encountered the Lord. And we trust that God is a good Father. And He will usher in breakthroughs in our lives. Amen. He will usher in breakthroughs in our lives. One last thing that I'm going to end. We've looked at the Luke chapter 3. We've looked at the Luke chapter 4. Look at Luke chapter 5. A chapter after, look at this. This is good news for you. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector. Jesus saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at that booth. And he said to him, Levi, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. Look at this. And Levi made him... The opposite of fasting, opposite, this is the exciting part. And Levi made him a great, a great feast. That's what we're good at. You know, actually, I don't really have to talk about feasting because we're so good at feasting. What we're bad at is fasting. But anyway, just for us to understand is there was a great feast. So what happened? The Pharisees came to him and says, they look at Jesus. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? It's kind of like, why do you eat with the, with the Italian mafia? Why do you eat with these unpatriotic people in Israel? What does Jesus say? Look at this. Here's what Jesus said. Let me just go to verse 33. So they went to Jesus in verse 33 and said, oh, look at this. Jesus, the disciples of John the Baptist, the very person who baptized you, what do they do? They often what? they often fast and pray. So, like what I said, I'm telling you, fasting is a common practice. Fasting is a common practice. See, They always fast, but your disciples, you guys always eat. What are, what's wrong with you? And Jesus said, look at Jesus said, can you make a wedding guest fast while the bridegroom is with them? Now, friends, did Jesus say, ah, come on, fasting is obsolete. Jesus didn't say that. Jesus didn't say that. Here's what happens. The disciples of John were fasting. Right? And the Pharisees were like, look at the disciples of John, they fast. Look at us, we fast. Everyone in their Jewish culture, they fast. But the problem is they fast without this. It's just, it's just a routine. It's just like praying for the sake of praying. It's like, Father God, Lord God, Father God, Lord God, Father God, Lord God, Father God, Lord God. God, God victory prayer it's kind of like ah, okay I'm gonna go to church because I'm a Christian so they fast without this they fast only because of this Jesus says he doesn't say this is obsolete no 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 this is gonna happen but for now we are going to feast we are going to feast and I'm gonna summarize it this way we're going to feast why are we going to feast Why are we going to feast? Because this Italian mafia right here, this guy right here who has become so sinful, this traitor, this betrayer, this person who did betrayal in our nation, this person has become a Christian. And so we feast. But what did he say? Can you make the bridegroom fast while he is with them? You can't do that. But he said, what does he say? A time is coming when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and they will fast. Why is that so? I'm going to end with this. Why is that so? Because when the bridegroom is taken away from them, that's the time that they will understand what the gospel is. This is the moment when the two persons on the road to Emmaus says, Were not our hearts burning while we were with him? when Jesus opened the scriptures to them and told them that every single thing points to Him, this was the time when Peter denied Jesus Christ three times and realized, my goodness, this is the Lord of all creation. They have realized that the crucifixion moment is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and then they will fast. An encounter with the divine, an encounter with the sacred, an encounter with the holiness of God, an encounter with the beauty and the majesty of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ drives people to fast. Are we not going to pray for great things to happen in our lives? Of course, we're going to pray for that. Of course, we're going to pray for that. As I end, a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ is marked by these three things. It's not just your orthodoxy. It's not just your practice. God is pleased with how much you know Him. But if your knowledge of Him does not lead to intimacy with Him, your knowledge of Him is utterly useless. God as well doesn't want us to keep doing and doing things for Him because at the end of the day, what matters is not our garments, but our hearts. Amen. You just heard a message from Victory Dumagete. For more messages like these or to access other resources, Please visit victorytumaguete.org or like our page on Facebook.